0: This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au.
1: Good evening, and welcome to tonight's session of the Caldor Centre's Virtual Conference 2020, Protection 360, Surveying Refugee Challenges Across the Regions. I would like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land from which I am joining you this evening, the Bedigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to the custodians of the lands from which you all are joining us tonight uh, or this morning, depending on where you are, whether you're in Australia or elsewhere, and particularly welcome any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders uh, joining us for this session. We have a fantastic lineup this evening. Four speakers are joining us live from around the world. We have Urub El Abed from the Centre for Lebanese Studies joining us from Amman, Jordan. Vitit Muntarbhorn from Chulalongkorn University in Bangkok, Thailand. Ottilia Anna Monginze from the Institute for Security Studies joining us from Pretoria, South Africa, and Catherine Costello joining us from the Centre for Fundamental Rights at the Hertie School in Berlin. Each of our live speakers will be giving a short presentation on the emerging challenges in refugee protection in their respective regions. We then also have a pre recorded interview from Maria Bances del Rey, Senior Protection Coordinator at the UNHCR Regional Bureau for the Americas. It's about 2 a.m. in Panama where Maria is, so understandably, she won't be joining us for the live questions. We look forward to a dynamic and wide-ranging discussion with our four live panellists after the presentations. To ask questions or upvote questions that others have asked, please use the q and function. Now to get her started, I'll invite Arub to share her reflections on the Middle East.
2: Right. Thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon to you all. Good morning to whoever is uh, having a morning at your end. Uh, very glad to be with you all. Um, this is a chance for me to talk about uh, the crises in the Middle East, uh, its wars, economic stagnation. The refugees and of a recent crisis or pandemic, COVID nineteen. This is the Middle East, and uh, I would like to have uh, the map in front of me when I'm giving my talk. Uh, I'm going to address um, uh, these five points, and I hope I'll manage to make them within the coming ten minutes. I'm going to move to to keep the mapping the map on. In 2009, Cornelisa Rice, the state secretary of the USA, um, during a visit to the the region, said that uh, uh, they will make a sure to start creative destruction of the region, the Middle East, to draw a new map of the Middle East. And that will favor Israel. The destruction, I must admit, has happened very quickly. And the devastating results have been seen so very promptly. The Middle East now is devastated with wars, civil wars, revolutions, counter revolutions, military coups, assassinations, and the basin of the oldest civilization, Mesopotamia, and its historical civilization today are destroyed. We're talking about Syria and Iraq. Its refugee crisis has grown in the Middle East, so very quickly and very such pressing humanitarian issues. The issue started with the Palestinians in 1948, where we have now 5 million Palestinians within the Middle East and 5 million Palestinians within the world. And followed by the Iraqi conflict, where we had about 6 million of Iraqis outside Iraq and many millions within Iraq displaced until today with a new religious and sectarian matter that was injected within Iraq. Today, with a Syrian refugee that started in 2011, we have more than 7 million Syrians living within the Middle East. Registered and not registered, this is another issue, added, of course, to 4 million displaced persons within Syria. Refugees within the region are in Lebanon, Turkey and Jordan. Most of the refugees were very much pushed. Especially those, the recent ones, the Syrian ones, were pushed by government forces, by armed rebels, by what was created in the region as jihadists and in an Islamic groups. Islamic groups that created the Islamic State, which again was created as part of could be the creative destruction that was very much eluded by Cornelis Rice in 2009. Not only that, now we have new powers that are trying to push within this region. I'm gonna take you to the economy very quickly because these refugees arrived in two countries focusing on Jordan and Lebanon. Both Jordan and Lebanon are middle-income countries known for rentier economy (coughs) states, highly dependent on aid and remittances. Moreover, they have been very exposed to the new liberalized imported economy over the last 20 years that divided the society into more classes with wide disparities, high percentages of poverty that is very much camouflaged by very modern skyrocketing buildings. Moreover, high, there is, this is a very, these two countries have very young generation, very young societies, and these young societies are suffering, have been suffering for the last 20 years from very high percentage of unemployment. Lebanon, divided by sectorial political divisions, very recurrent political issues, recently had to be exposed to a new crisis to add to its problems that very much did not get, get it out from the wars, the multiple wars it have been enduring until the year 1990 with very dilapidated infrastructure and lacks, lacking of adequate public services to be encountered recently by financial major financial crises, where banks are unable to give money to their beneficiaries and to their holders. In August, there has been an explosion of the port that added and worsened the situation in Lebanon, where that had created very much ramifications on the people, the economic damage and socio-economic uncertainty among Lebanese and among their refugee guests. Jordan's economy is a little bit better, yet it has been suffering stagnation for the last 20 years That very much worsened as a result of COVID-19 and the lockdown that was imposed on the country because of an emergency law run by the military, not anymore by the government, in order to make sure that people will stay home and they will be able to address this emergency. This lockdown very much fired back on the economy because of the the prevention of going out to the market. And that lasted from March until June. And until today, the lockdown continues to be in a very shy way. These two countries are very much dependent on funding. The international community has been much involved in supporting both countries with billions that are in need of to save and say in order to support these countries from their economic devastation, but also from the influx, the major influxes of refugees coming through their borders. Unfortunately, because the matter of refugee in both regions in both countries, starting with the Palestinians to the Iraqis to the Syrians. Lots of international community and lots of the donors are failing to meet their promises by funding these uh, countries. A regional refugee and resilience plan was created in 2015 in order to channel the funds in a very systematic and strategic way to help these countries provide for their own citizens, but also for their refugees. Most importantly in this, these countries are believing that they cannot, and here I'm going to move on to the refugee aspect, are unable to take the responsibility over their refugee guests because they believe that there should be a burden sharing by the international community, rather than burden shifting where the global North is tending to give money to the region in order for the for the refugees to remain in the Middle East and not to travel to the West. So the call is we will we as as Middle Eastern countries, we will not take the responsibility over these refugees, especially that both Jordan moving on to both Jordan and Lebanon, are countries that are not signatory of the 1951 convention having not signed the 1951 convention make them refuse make them refuse the fact of taking the responsibility over their refugees this made both jordan and lebanon tailor their own policies to address the refugees lebanon with a very historical background of dealing with Refugees with their with certain religious and sectarian background has been ref- dealing with the uh, Syrian refugees in a very very restrictive manner by limiting them access to any kind of services on one hand, by not permitting them to create their own camps and they ha- they ended up having their own tenting settlements that are created majorly in the north and in the east of the country, Jordan had a little bit of more strategic way by shifting into what is called a humanitarian from moving away from a humanitarian emergency approach to a developmental approach by channeling the money to develop the country and to give access to the refugees to all the public services, permitting them to give access as exactly as citizens. COVID-19, however, with the lockdown rendered majorly the refugees locked in their houses, unable to go out for work, while the majority of the refugees are so dependent on informal work, being so dependent on very limited kind of income, rendered them without, unable to sustain a livelihood. The online education are pushing away lots of Syrian uh, uh, refugees from schooling, while Jordan at the very beginning. Try to push these people to go into schools. I'm going to finish with this. One of the approaches that Jordan did was to go to the international community, invite them to take part in order to save these refugees who are unable to make it with the limited uh, income that Jordan can give to them. I'm now calling again to this. Why can't we go back to the Jordan, to the refugee compact? where we are inviting stakeholders, private partners, to come in and to save these refugees and the countries that are hosting majorly more than 3 million refugees on its land. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Rub. Uh, Vatit, may I invite you to continue the discussion uh, with reflections from Asia? Hello everyone,
3: can you hear me? Thank you, Um, warm greetings from Bangkok uh, in Southeast Asia. What I'd like to do is to cover the Asia-Pacific situation briefly. And the presentation is divided succinctly, hopefully, into three parts. Number one, the setting, which is actually the pandemic setting. Number two, the general situation over the past 40, 50 years. And number three, the scenario of sensibilities and possibilities. With regard to the pandemic setting, it's of course the case that here as elsewhere, we have often a very closed door situation, blocked frontiers and lockdown together with quarantined, uh, quarantine, et cetera, making life very difficult for asylum. But it is interesting also that in some situations, refugees are flooding back to the country of origin because the asylum country is plagued by COVID. This is the classic case of Afghans. And there is not only backflow, but also internal reflow, and then secondary flow to other countries, including towards Europe. So this does complicate matters very much in terms of uncertainties. Secondly, the pandemic in all countries has given more powers to the executive branch. And in many of our countries, there's a state of emergency with increased parts for the military, the executive branch, with all kinds of limitations on rights and freedoms for the general population, as well as the refugee asylum seeking population. Thirdly, despite constraints, we do try to see some hope and we do find some with some preferred practices emerging. And some have come through, particularly through the Global Compacts Refugee Forum, which took place last year, which is being carried through to some extent, even in these difficult times, in terms of more shared um, responsibility and help between different actors, which I will refer to, particularly as regards the Afghans. Second, situation. Well, we're covering 45 countries, roughly, from the Mediterranean to the Pacific Islands. And I will not touch upon the Syrian situation because that's the biggest current situation of internally displaced and cross-border flows. But let me just note that the biggest flow for the past 40 years has been the Afghan flow. 40 year old problem. And there's still 1.4 million Afghan refugees in Iran, in, in, sorry, in Pakistan and 1 million Afghans in Iran. Altogether, well over 6 million flow over the past 40 years. Both Iran and Pakistan have dealt with the situation well and that's giving us a bit of hope. Pakistan is not a party to the refugee convention either, but Iran is. So there is some encouragement, at least through good practices, through some eyes and ears of developing countries. The other major situation today is the Myanmar situation of over 1 million Rohingya Muslim refugees exiting from Myanmar. But I would not forget that we have a plethora of other cases. If you look back to the 70s and 80s and 90s, we had millions of Indochinese leaving. Um, And today, we have a big group of non-Asians, so to speak, uh, Africans uh, and others arriving, or non-Southeast Asians arriving from West Asia, North, Northeast Asia, and so on. One of the best responses has been through the Afghan situation, particularly to get on board cooperation between Pakistan, Iran, Afghanistan, and the UN, particularly the And from 2012, we've had cooperation through a so-called solution strategy for Afghan refugees, highlighting asylum, capacity building for refugees and host population, voluntary repatriation with support for home population, as well as help for local communities together with refugees along the way. And since 2002, 5.3 Afghans have returned to their homeland, but today it is only a trickle because of COVID. And yet there's this irony of some leaving spontaneously because they feel it's safer in Afghanistan than Iran or Pakistan where there are big caseloads of COVID. Finally on that, since last year, we have a special platform today, the support platform for solution strategy for Afghan refugees emerging from the Global Refugee Forum, which means more cooperation between different actors, humanitarian actors, World Bank and the like, as well as development actors, to get on board more support for these three or four countries. With regard to the Rohingya situation, it's more difficult. Um, Bangladesh has been the main recipient, nearly a million, but there's a very intransigent situation in the region at the moment, and even Bangladesh, uh, due to recent flows and Covid, has become more stringent, fencing settlements of refugees in Cox's Bazar, where there was no fence previously together with um, some maritime cases that have been very difficult to resolve over the past few months. Uh, lastly, i have just note that um, there are other regions of Asia which we shouldn't forget. Central Asia is often forgotten. Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and so on. The door is closed pretty well. China is a party of the Refugee Convention, not easy to get in. And we have a situation in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs, as everybody knows. Uh, Further north, Japan, uh, Korea, are parties to the refugee convention, but only a trickle are able to get in. And uh, in Southeast Asia, the biggest caseload is in Malaysia of uh, Rohingya refugees, over 100,000. And in Thailand, there are 100,000 old cases of Burmans uh, from Myanmar, Burmese refugees, who are still here, together with new caseloads, particularly urban refugees who are more recent arrivals from a plethora of different uh, points in Asia and beyond. Now, I just note finally uh, that uh, on this front, uh, Australia and the Pacific uh, are very interesting. Australia has been very good on resettling refugees from Southeast Asia, but it has been what I would call rather anomalous or idiosyncratic in regard to direct arrivals. So Australia basically pushes them to um, Nauru and Papua New Guinea to be processed There's a bilateral arrangement between Australia and Cambodia to shift cases from Australia, or Nauru Papua New Guinea to Cambodia, which hasn't really worked. And there's also support given by Australia to Indonesia to help with intercepted cases. Intercepted where? Intercepted to prevent them from going to Australia. So um, Australia is a member of the refugee convention. So one's looking for good practices also from a lead country there, even though, let's be fair, Australia was very good on resettlement from Southeast Asia. Lastly, on the scenario, quick. Number one, admission, temporary refuge and protection. Difficult, fluctuations in the region. At least we try to advocate temporary asylum, temporary refuge, and to a large extent, this has been accorded throughout the years, but there are anomalies along the way, as has been implied. Number two, identification and status determination. There are about 20 countries in Asia Pacific, which are parties to the Refugee Convention. Only a few of them have screening procedures and we can critique screening procedures as well, but most of them don't, or if they do, they're not effective. The best one along the way is from the Philippines, which has less red tape than many others and which offers a degree of objectivity. Interestingly, countries like Thailand, which are not parties to the Refugee Convention, some of them are also initiating screening so as to ensure that there's fairness and transparency. Thirdly, basic necessities, self-reliance and humane treatment. Difficult cases recently on refoulement at sea, but of course we try to promote non refoulement generally. Detention cases, so we're trying to get people out of detention, particularly children. And interestingly in Thailand, there's an MOU to get children out of detention into non-custodial care. And happily, happily, in many countries, children, uh, refugees have access to education, but most countries don't give the opportunity to work except Iran, which enables access in a listed uh, group of uh, possibilities of work. And now with COVID, there's less work for everybody and it's even worse for refugees. Fourthly, birth registration, nationality and statelessness still difficult um, on some fronts in terms of nationality, but on birth registration, most countries allow. Um, Central Asia, Kazakhstan so have done best in terms of overcoming statelessness by giving nationality. So those are examples. Fifth, root causes and causation. Let's not forget the human rights violations in the country of origin together with peace concerns, which have to be tackled and not to burden shift or burden whatever. Get back to square one of let's look at the root causes. And last but not least, regional cooperation and international cooperation. We have the Bali process of 45 countries in Asia looking over this, but it's more word oriented to do with smuggling and trafficking. Rather than a protection regime. We don't have a regional system on refugee protection here. And finally, on uh, international cooperation, of course, we welcome very much uh, possibilities. And that's why the compact together with the forum has given us more possibilities, known as through complementary pathways, such as more sponsorships, more humanitarian visas, et cetera, et cetera. So the solution is basi- basically one of international cooperation, looking to multifaceted cooperation globally. Thank you. Thank you very much, Vit.
1: That was an extraordinarily comprehensive survey of the challenges that we are seeing in Asia. Moving across the continents now, Attilia, may I invite you to reflect on some of the emerging challenges in terms of refugee protection that we're seeing in Africa.
4: Thank you very much. Um, I speak to you today as people are fleeing out of the Tigray region in Ethiopia out of parts of Eritrea as a result of an emerging conflict uh, within both countries um, uh, in which we have seen both the Ethiopian authorities and the Eritrean authorities essentially try um, to quell a conflict by fueling a conflict. I start here because in understanding the African continent, a continent of 55 nations, But also the continent, which at the moment remains uh, at the brunt of the refugee crises globally, there's no better way than to really reflect on current as well as past and ongoing conflicts. I also need to emphasize that for the majority of refugees within and out of the African continent, most of them are driven out of their homes as a result of conflict. That is not to say that there are not many other factors that lead people out of their homes and, in fact, Africa recognized this early on as early as 1969 in the adoption of the organization of African unities. Convention governing the specific aspects of refugee problems in Africa for the African continent as far back as 51 years ago, there was a recognition that while conflict. Was the main driver of people leaving their countries? That there are many other multifaceted reasons as to why people would be forced to flee. Adding on to that, obviously, with the Katarina uh, Declaration that further broadened the definition, um, this makes it important for me and in my reflections to look at what really constitutes a refugee within the African context before going into why necessity, so to speak, is the mother of invention and innovation for the African continent and looking at particular responses in particular countries. So as I've already pointed out, conflict remains the major driver of flows within the African continent of people fleeing their homes. There are many victims of man-made disasters across the continent, including evolving violent extremism, stretching as far as the West African region in the Sahel, the Lake Chad Basin into North Africa and the Horn of Africa. I unfortunately do not have a map, so I hope as I speak I can map out for you the expanse of the problems that we encounter on the African continent. This is not to say that other regions as where I am today in southern Africa, are not affected by refugee crises. It is rather to emphasize the varied nature of these problems. And what that means when it comes to actually crafting the right kind of responses. And this is why I say necessity often becomes the mother of invention in the African context. When you are confronted by a multitude of problems, but also when you yourself as a refugee receiving country are in many regards, sometimes also a refugee sending country. You have to find ways in which you are able to manage uh, your own crises at home, as well as the crisis of your neighboring country. So I will hone in now on the Horn of Africa and the Central African region, where we find a a, a confluence of many conflicts. And as a result, um, it becomes the heart of um, of the refugee crises for the African continent. Here, I'm speaking about the Central African Republic, the Democratic Republic of the Congo to its south, Sudan, both south and uh, Sudan to its north. I'm speaking about Ethiopia and Eritrea, Somalia, an intractable conflict still ongoing. I'm also speaking about Uganda. For those of you that are not familiar with the map of Africa, These countries are all contiguous zones. I'm also speaking about evolving issues in Nigeria and Cameroon in the broader Lake Chad Basin. It's important to emphasize and underscore these varied countries, because while these are countries that people are fleeing from, they're also countries that must host these refugees and so for countries like Uganda and Ethiopia themselves, source countries of refugees, but also countries that are at the spearhead of the comprehensive refugee response framework and really starting off as leading countries in ways to deal with refugee crises. What do you do as a country that itself is dealing with issues of unemployment, inequality, poverty and stresses of development You find ways to ensure that integration inclusion access to employment and opportunities are part of your response, because if you do not do so, you will be confronted with another emerging conflict between those that have come into your country and those that are meant to host them. So for a country like Uganda, not only in the border regions, but going all the way to the capital in Kampala, you find ways to ensure that refugees can get work. Ethiopia that I started my presentation with is a country that is hosting multitudes of refugees from South Sudan, Sudan and Somalia, as well as Eritrea, while itself emerging as a refugee source country. What has Ethiopia done with its refugee camp in Gambela, hosting a majority of people from South Sudan, or Jijiga in the east, where it deals with a majority of Somalian refugees? It has tried to mainstream access to employment and opportunities and effective integration into society. Maybe not necessarily because it wants to, but because it recognizes the importance of doing so the need to ensure that at the very least you must ensure stability within your own country and to do that it has to include all those that enter and so as I as I wrap up uh, my presentation um, I would like to uh, um, ask those of you that are tuned in and those of you that will watch later to reflect on what gaps they are globally in addressing the refugee challenges but also in understanding that unfortunately until we address the root causes that are pushing people out we will continue to have refugees and until we recognize that much as these are people that are fleeing uh, persecution violence and conflict they are also people with uh, aspirations for prosperity and development, and people who ideally would want to work, if not at home, they would want to work elsewhere, and to ensure that policies actually accept the reality of 2020. COVID is now, and hopefully COVID will not be the future, but there has to be an understanding that the evolving dynamics must be addressed, if not in law, in practice, and in policy. Thank you, Madeline.
1: Thank you very much, Attilio, for those uh, important points and calling us to reflect upon them. Uh, we'll continue the conversation now with our final live presentation, passing over now to Catherine to reflect on the situation in Europe and perhaps
0: some of its global implications. Over to you, Catherine. Uh, thank you very much, Madeleine, and to all the previous speakers. Um, I mean, you set us a challenge with talking about a 360 degree panoramic view, but um, It's been amazing to listen to the previous three speakers cover these regions and bring these uh, rich insights. Um, So I wanted to do four things in my 10 minutes. Um, Firstly, to reflect a little bit on which Europe, because I think when we talk about refugee and refugee protection, there are many different Europe's. And I was grateful for Urub's map, so the reminder that, of course, the EU and the Middle East are entirely contiguous, we share the Mediterranean. Um, And Turkey is, of course, a European state, uh, also partly in the Middle East, or at least in Asia, Um, and the linchpin of the EU vision of refugee containment elsewhere. So I think we can't talk about the EU or wider Europe and refugee protection without uh, thinking about Turkey and its neighboring states. Um, I also wanted to reflect on other aspects of EU externalization. and the role of funding, um, and really how little we know about how uh, the funding which the EU and other donors give is used, Um, and maybe to reflect that a little bit as lawyers on what is our responsibility as legal scholars in terms of actually trying to understand accountability and legal constraints in the context of funding. Um, And then just reflect a little bit on Europe and the EU proper, um, in particular how it's understanding um, its external borders and. Uh, practices around borders and also on uh, how refugees and asylum seekers are treated within the EU. Very much mindful when we talk about the EU that we claim to have a common European asylum system. It's an extremely legalized system. We have detailed shared procedural and substantive rules on all sorts of aspects of the asylum process. Um, But nonetheless, we have huge variation in practice. So I think in some ways the European context. um, Also, I think as lawyers and perhaps legal scholars or activists who work with law, I think it's really worth thinking about the limits of the law and the limits of highly legalized processes. Um, So as I mentioned, the question about which Europe or thinking about Europe, I think obviously we have the EU with its uh, ostensibly common European asylum system and then we have the Europe of human rights exemplified in the uh, Council of Europe system and the European Court of Human Rights. Um, I think it's fair to say that at one point the European Court of Human Rights was the vanguard institution, at least on non-refoulement, if not on refugee protection generally. Um, And there are real questions nowadays whether that's uh, still the case. Um, It's a court that's under a lot of uh, political pressure in some senses and has given a lot of quite disappointing rulings of late. Uh, particularly on non-refoulement at the EU's external borders on collective expulsions and its ruling on ND and NT against Spain. Uh, But nonetheless, it's still, I guess, one of the most powerful regional human rights courts and has made a substantial contribution to some aspects of protection, in particular around non-refoulement. When we look at the EU with its, again, very legalized system, um, it's always been part and parcel of the system of containing refugees elsewhere. Um, I mean, it is really EU visa policies uh, together with carrier sanctions that are creating the system where if anybody wants to flee to Europe, they have to use irregular means to do so, and those irregular means are going to be dangerous. Um, We didn't always have carrier sanctions. So one can go back and read articles by Erica Feller from 20 years ago saying how carrier sanctions completely undermine refugee protection. Uh, but they seem to be a part of the jigsaw that is both understudied and sort of assumed to be inevitable nowadays. Um, uh, and I was, when I went through the global compacts, both on refugees and migrants, I was really struck that there wasn't a single mention of carrier sanctions as one of the key parts of the edifice of refugee containment. That's not to say that only Europe does refugee containment. I think Daniel Geiselbach and other scholars have been quite. Um, adept at showing us that these are largely US practices that then Australia and the EU have mimicked and developed and made their own. Um, And indeed, as uh, Jane McAdam and Helen Lambert uh, studied together with other contributors several years ago, a lot of these norms are diffused and mimicked elsewhere. So if the US, Europe and Australia engage in certain practices, uh, they both share between themselves, but it also gives those practices a veneer of legitimacy. So that means, for example, that the European practice of safe third country, which was uh, a practice that began uh, in Europe and was legitimized constitutionally in Germany, um, and maybe in in a different sort of world, could be implemented in a way that is refugee protective. If you were genuinely trying to get other states to also be safe for refugees, uh, in practice becomes a tool of deflection, um, especially as we see it's being implemented uh, by the US vis-a-vis Mexico, um, and there's, I guess, one recent glimmer of hope with an important Canadian ruling on safe third country. So that was really just to say that there are, of course, many Europes, and, uh, and one of them is the geographical Europe, which includes Turkey, which is also a member of the Council of Europe. Um, the EU-Turkey so-called deal um, seeks to contain refugees, particularly Syrian refugees in Turkey, and contains a very significant transfer of funds from the EU to Turkey. It's remarkably difficult to get any information about how those funds uh, work. Of course, with these deals, the incentive structure means, of course, there's no transparency in benchmarking. In fact, the other the party giving the funds doesn't actually really want to know if things are improving for refugees or not. They don't really want to make that aid conditional because that would really that's not the balance of the equation. the The power balance is such that uh, if you get into a deal with Turkey or indeed Gaddafi's Libya previously, then you're handing that other party a huge amount of political power, and so it's not surprising we don't find benchmarking. So. In the recent human rights reports on EU Turkey, for example, it's even very difficult to know how many work permits Syrian refugees in Turkey have. Uh, And I think all the previous speakers mentioned questions about work rights. And there have been these global attempts uh, in the Jordan compact. And indeed, it's part of the ethos of the refugee compact about self-reliance is to think about work rights. But we don't have serious attempts to to benchmark work rights issues or conditionality around work rights. And and in particular, what's absent is a serious attempt to think about decent work. Um, So I recommend to everybody the work that Jennifer Gordon did studying the the Jordan Compact and the Ethiopian Compact, which is still in its very early stages, to to see the deficits and thinking through how funding could be leveraged for positive outcomes. Uh, So of course, there are many facets of EU externalization. and it's it's hard to summarize them, but to to summarize, in general, the EU has various um, externalized projects, which largely involve giving funding to um, African states, states in the Middle East um, and elsewhere. Uh, Some of that funding is for migration control. Some of it is ostensibly to stop people migrating. So you find all sorts of little livelihoods, projects and bits and pieces. Uh, And some of it is for the hard edges of refugee containment. Um, so funding, the Libyan Coast Guard, uh, the Turkish Coast Guard, and so on. In terms of process, uh, most of the funding goes through IOM, so the International Organization for Migration, which is a UN-related but not a UN body, and doesn't really have strong, a strong tradition of accountability or transparency. And in some really remarkable recent scholarship, uh, Thomas Beikeboer and Elise Stager have actually found that Uh, The EU itself deems there to be an emergency across most of Africa so that it doesn't have to adhere to its own public procurement rules in dispersing funds under the EU Trust Fund for Africa, Uh, and they've done a very detailed analysis, which I recommend to you all. So externalization could be uh, a set of practices where funding is leveraged for better protection to catalyze the kind of vision which Attilia was putting forward, where we are concerned about refugees' own agency um, and encouraging states to offer inclusive opportunities for refugees. Uh, But at the moment, it's not. It's completely, I think, tainted and imbricated with refugee containment. So when we look, um, and I have two minutes then to talk about practices within the EU, Um, Just stepping back and drawing a couple of general conclusions. As I said, the EU within, when it treats asylum seekers and refugees, when they arrive, of course, one, they have to arrive irregularly. Resettlement and humanitarian admissions are still minuscule. Uh, Two, they won't all be recognized. And I think uh, in spite of all the harmonization, we still have a mass, massive disparities in recognition rates across Europe, and also the notion of a refugee in these very individualized systems is quite different. As Attilia mentioned, we don't have an expanded definition. I don't actually think the definition is what really the problem is. It's these very individualized systems and a framing which, for example, can't really take into account the protection needs of an Afghan who has fled from Iran for very good reasons. Um, And so for all the high recognition rates for let's say Syrians and Eritreans, uh, you have populations like Afghans, who to my mind are refugees, but are not uh, uh, going to be, uh, for most of them, let's say 60 to 70% of Afghans who claim asylum in Europe are not going to be recognized. Uh, So I think we need to think about those institutions, not just about refugee definitions, but the practices of refugee recognition much more closely. Um, And I recommend to you a recent special uh, issue of the forced migration review that with colleagues, um, I put together, looking at the question of refugee recognition as the gateway to refugee protection. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Catherine. We will now hear from Maria Bances del Rey about protection concerns live and emerging in the Americas.
5: Good evening, everyone. My name is Maria Vances, Senior Protection Coordinator at the UNASEAN Regional Bureau based in Panama. It's really a pleasure for me being here today at the Calder Annual Conference 2020.
1: Maria, thank you for joining us this evening from the Americas to shed some light on the emerging and future protection concerns in your region to start us off could you please uh, tell us a bit about what the big issues are that your region is facing at the moment in terms of forced displacement and given that the COVID-19 pandemic in particular uh, has been radically reshaping our world what are some of the things you're seeing there in terms of border closures what are some of the new protection concerns emerging in response to that development
5: thank you very much Madeleine. i think one of the issues very much a mobile uh, displaced uh, population that actually goes from one country to another, the impact of the COVID, of course, have actually affected the way that states have actually responded to the protection and assistance of persons of consent to Eunasia. Basically, I mean, of course, as legitimate as some of these limitations could be for the resource of health, I mean, had actually made an impact in terms of access to territory, access to the asylum systems, as well as access to livelihoods and assistance, which are actually made an associated protection risk for persons of consent, not only because of lack of documentation, lack of being able to access to the asylum system, but also uh, have actually prompted them to move irregularly from one country to another. At the same time, the risk associated, which includes, for instance, trafficking and smuggling, also lack of uh, documentation, uh, as well prevention, um, I would say also risk of statelessness and actually lack of uh, livelihood opportunities, which also have put these uh, populations at displaced, but also at risk and uh, with extreme vulnerability, which has actually made them a bit more vulnerable than they were before.
1: Thank you. And looking to the coming decade, what are the next big challenges that you anticipate the Americas will face in terms of forced displacement?
5: I think, of course, the question of the political environment would be one of them. Of course, there's a lot of changing in the in the different political scenarios, as well as the impact of a number of countries who would have also elections coming up, which could also change uh, perhaps the migration and asylum policies, as well the uh, a huge mobile uh, population, which comes from one country to another, as well, whether the impact of the COVID had actually put a lot of countries in a destituted position for which uh, increase resources and increase economic development would also be needed, so I think the question of the political environment, political stability, of course, we still have the, the, the situation in the North Central America, the situation of Venezuela, Colombia is still a new increase in displacement. Secondly, would be also the institutional and, as I said, the economical impact in which also will be a need for states to have the needed resources, apart from the political uh, willingness to actually assist and, and address the increasing needs of persons of consent, and then it will be the cooperation among countries. I think there is a number of original processes which actually address a number of situations, which is the North Central America, also the and the Venezuela response, and could uh, also be to look at partnerships, also the engagement of the financial and development institutions, and also one of the key aspects will be the inclusion of the national on the national uh, development plans and inclusion, also the, of the access to rights for persons of consent to you, uh, to UNICS. Yeah, I think that would be one of the key challenges. In addition to, of course, the continued support in the systems of asylum, which are a bit overwhelmed at the moment, and also another aspect would be partnership, apart from the inclusion of national development systems, but also another one would be the use of innovative uh, mechanisms. For instance, the COVID-19 international literature how to look at innovative modalities, for instance, for asylum processing, remote uh, interviewing processing, uh, in, uh, remote, sorry, remote um, uh, access to um, CAS intervention uh, for refugees. So, I mean, all these innovative uh, aspects would also be how to be featured as a new way of, 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 um, of looking at protection and, and delivery of services to persons of consent.
1: Thank you. And how well equipped is the region to respond to those challenges? You've flagged a few potential issues that might arise and directions that protection might go in. Uh, What further developments or advancements are necessary uh, to meet those displacement challenges over the next decade?
5: I think one of the of the aspects will be at the global level is what is called the Global uh, Refugee Forum and the Global Compact on Refugees, who came out of the of New York Declaration uh, for, for Refugees and Migrants in 2016, which actually envisaged a Global Compact on Refugees as a one way of mechanisms for which uh, sharing responsibilities by states in responding to, to displacement, uh, looking at, at identification of co- root causes as well as provision of assistance and finding solutions. So I think that framework actually sets up the the basis for a a a responsibility and sharing uh, among the different countries. So I think that will be one of the key instruments in order to define exactly what would be the cooperation among the states and other entities and partnership with key stakeholders in order to provide solutions for the displacement within the Americas. We do have a mechanism, which is the uh, regional application of the Global Compact on Refugees, which is called the MIERS, the Comprehensive Refugee Response Plan for the the Americas, which is at the moment is implemented in Central America, which would be one key mechanism to help the states through their own national systems to develop responses for them, for addressing their response uh, to refugees and also displacement. So I think that could be one of the aspects that we could look at, how states and stakeholders looking at the whole or society approach will be able to put together to share responsibilities to find solutions for refugees. So I think that would be one of the aspects I will very much envisage as one innovative aspect by which countries will have to start getting together and implement the commitment made at the Global Refugee Forum last year in June.
1: Thank you very much. And was there anything else that you wanted to add in terms of looking at the future and your region and uh, new frontiers in terms of refugee protection?
5: I think that it would also be a bit more of a, a collaboration also that the communities of refugees will also have to continue to, to play a key role. I mean, it's also the voices of refugees that will have to be consulted. And also the, the support to the communities, also to the host communities. I think that also triangulates very well with what we as UNHCR, or together with other agencies and also states or stakeholders, could do. But also the, the inclusion of the host communities is also key in order to to avoid any imbalance and also xenophobia, discrimination, any type of or host type attitudes that could come. So we can also aim to support together the host communities plus. The, uh, the presence of consent to union. that would be one of the aspects that I would be looking at, and as well the um, I think innovative solutions. I think would also be important, as I mentioned before. But also the the, the financial institutions and the development institutions. I think that would really be critical in when we're going towards the inclusion and finding solutions for refugees, which is very innovative when it comes to to respond collaboratively to the issue of refugees.
1: Maria, thank you very much for talking to us this evening. Have a good night.
5: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to me, and thank you. And I wish you a very successful conference.
1: Well, thank you to all of our speakers who have presented uh, this evening or this morning, wherever you are. That brings us to the end of the presentation component of tonight's session. So what we'll do now is we'll move into the Q&A session. If you have questions that you would like to ask to the speakers, uh, please do so through the Q&A function, or you can see the questions that are already there and vote for those uh, that you would most like to hear uh, the speakers respond to. So to kick us off, breaking the world into regions, as we've done tonight, can help practically to ensure that we're looking at the global issue in its entirety, and also to group together areas where there may be common concerns but it can also be somewhat artificial and perhaps unhelpful to overfocus on regions. And each of your presentations tonight have touched on this point in a different way. If I can ask each of you to delve into this a little bit deeper, looking ahead to the next decade and the protection challenges that we are likely to see, how helpful is it to look at the issue of refugee protection region by region? What are the benefits of this approach and what are the shortcomings? And are there different ways in we might configure the world uh, in terms of our analysis? Um, Perhaps Catherine if I could
0: go first to you on that for reflections on uh, the regional issue. Um, I think it's natural if there are distinctive regional regimes and uh, that we study those in a way. So Latin America with Cartagena, uh, Africa with the OAU convention, uh, and the EU with its sort of very legalized uh, both EU and Council of Europe system. So in a way, they, they sort of demand attention. Uh, but I think more deeply, the question of region is, is um, it's, it's a really interesting one in just geopolitically. Um, and I think, I suppose my choice to study, to, to just give some remarks on EU externalization was precisely because Uh, regions and states engage with one another in different ways on refugee questions. Um, I always found it interesting that both Cartagena and the OAU convention came about at times when the regions were dealing with their own refugees. And, um, And in some ways, Europe, I think maybe with the Balkans crisis was, in some sense, understood that the Balkan crisis was a European crisis. But when it just goes a few thousand kilometers further east into the Middle East there, that's the other. Um, And so I do think thinking through the boundaries of identity and history, and obviously if you're talking about Europe, you're talking about colonial legacies and neo-colonial structures. Um, I think we have to not just take the boundaries of our own regions as given. Um, and also think about within regional diversity too. I think that's crucia- crucially important. I mean, uh, well, obviously, I mean, Europe is a continent. Africa is a continent. Um, Asia has so many different sub-regions that I think, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, both, I, but I think thinking through geography, geopolitics, and history, as well as legal institutions gives us a very, a much richer understanding of regions.
1: Oh, Rob, would you like to come in on that question? Thank you.
2: That's interesting. Uh, Catherine mentioned uh, the regional agreements, but she failed to say something about the Middle East, because there isn't, unfortunately. Uh, in the Middle East, um, I can see I, I'm, I'm looking at it from, from multi uh, layers. The first one, let's say it's domestic. where we're we're so aware that um, the policy vis-a-vis refugees has been very much tailored based on the political agenda of each state, political and financial agenda. Um, uh, And uh, I'll I'll give an example of Jordan. Jordan has been accepting to keep open borders uh, for all the refugees because in turn, it is receiving funding uh, from the international community. And it has intelligently been channeling the funds in order to benefit, to benefit its own economy. So here we're talking about, yes, we will provide a minimum kind of protection as long as we as a country benefiting for our own development. So it has been a bargain, I may say it. This is a one may concern Jordan. So the protection that I see it on in Jordan, and I'm, I'm, in fact, it also addresses a question that, that has been raised uh, by someone, uh, by Trudy, about how ideal is the protection that Jordan has provided providing for refugees. So at the domestic level, it has been giving this kind of, I'll give you kind of registration, I'll give you certain kind of accessing for certain rights Uh, Provided that this is all supported by the international community with the concept of the burden sharing uh, in a strategic way. Yet, while I'm doing that, I need to make sure, and here we come to the other word, again tailored very much by the local body, which is the Jordan Compact. Jordan, for example, did accept that at one point refugees, Syrian refugees, are giving access, given access to work opportunities, yet, It decided to make one pattern out of the refugees, permitting them only to go into one sector, which is the services, agriculture, and construction. So if you are a dentist, you have no right to work. So here we're talking about how the state with its very much political economic uh, agenda, shaped the, the, the word protection to serve its own interests. So here we move on and Lebanon. Lebanon, for example, with its political sectorial division, decided just at one point to prevent UNHCR from even registering refugees. So here we come to a major cap. I'm j- jumping over here to the international level. So we understand that the local level does not want to provide protection. And when we move on to the international level, the international level is being limited because at the end of the day, you have a sovereignty of a state. So, and the UNHCR is completely failing on doing the registration of, of Syrian refugees within, within Lebanon. So, here we move up, takes me to move to another level, which really that's, that's why I've, I've, I ended my talk questioning the whole uh, refugee compact is that. Shall we just think about the role of the international community, the private sector, the international organizations, and as, as also mentioned, also give give grant for the, for the refugees themselves to be involved in order for us to ask these countries, host countries, to look at residency rights. I am thinking about the other day, I started writing a paper on, can we start thinking of human rights-based uh, ground that can ensure the basic rights and basic uh, uh, basic rights for residents, for residents. Exactly supporting Catherine with how do we define refugees? Can we just define that this is a person who doesn't have protection and we need to ensure them with their basic rights? So these are the three levels I am able to see within our region with the very limited kind of uh, thinking that's happening at
1: the Arab region. Thank you. Uh, Vitit, would you like to come in on the question of regions? Obviously it's a contested issue in Asia. You're muted.
3: Sorry, Vitit, you're muted. Humbly, I don't believe in monoliths in terms of human rights protection. I look at checks and balances. So even if I use the term region, it can mean many components of the region. Uh, through the eyes of a regional organization, perhaps if it exists, Uh, but in many situations we don't have a regional human rights, refugee-oriented organization. So the question is, how do you use, if you use a regional political economic organization, if at all, on this matter, and this this arises. Uh, Secondly, we have sub-regions, bilateral cooperation beyond different entry points, classic case in Asia, uh, there's no big, big thing in Asia in terms of coverage, but you have different corners of Asia with different mezzo systems. Uh, I would say West Asia, the Arab region, to some extent is Asian too. You know, I mean, uh, particularly the Gulf countries. Uh, Lebanon is also counted as Asian. So, use whatever means we have as checks and balances to accord as best we can the protection in these difficult times. Is my message. Thank you.
1: Thank you, and Ottilia. before I turn to you, if I can make the question even more complex and add on uh, an aspect which Tamara has put in the questions, which is that we talk a lot about regional refugee protection and the role of regional fora and frameworks, such as the EU and the AU, but how important are sub-regional fora and frameworks? And she gives the example of the regional economic communities in Africa, um, asking how important they are in dealing with the challenges in refugee protection, and are they becoming more important?
4: Um, I was going to respond in thirty seconds, but uh, that's not going to be possible now, is it? Um, Take your time. <laughs> you know, we we we've spoken um, uh, for the most part uh, up until now. We've spoken through the lens of the continents, so we've defined the the region, so to speak, as the continents. The the reality, and and when I spoke, I purposefully honed in on the African continent and African response to refugee issues um, intentionally, uh, but not because um, we do not have refugees uh, uh, coming from Africa towards uh, Europe or towards the the, the Middle East or that part of Western Asia. Um, We do, Uh, and not also because we don't have people coming in from some of the Gulf States into the Horn of Africa and also northwards, we do. Uh, And I think the reality is, um, and it almost goes without saying, but maybe let me say it. The reality is when people flee from conflict, the, the nearest port of call will be where they go. That is not to say that that is their last port of call. And uh, a lot of, and I see a question that has been posed around the New Pact, for example, a lot of the ways in which, for example, Europe has shaped its response has been to the the incoming uh, refugees from outside of the European continent. The challenge we have is a global world with globally moving people trying to fragment action and response when we, we ought to, ideally, we ought to, and this is the only time I will say this. Uh, uh, normally, I would say bottom up. In this case, I would actually say uh, top down. And I'm not saying this in a hierarchical way. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that the global community of countries is higher than the nation state. I'm actually saying that there has to be a mechanism at the very least in place through which we can encourage coordination. And then where does coordination happen? And I like the question that Tamara posed. It's it's, it's simply uh, impossible for this coordination to come from whether it's the UN refugee agency or, or any other global body. Ultimately, the action is taken at a national level and it's taken at a regional level. And that is where regional mechanisms, and I steer from regional economic communities purposely, but this is where regional mechanisms matter as coordination spaces rather than the directors, uh, so to speak, uh, uh, of policy. How do you ensure uh, burden sharing, responsibility sharing, um, and, and engagement if, if you limit it to the state alone, uh, and I'll end here. Sorry, Madeline, I took a little bit longer than I thought I would. But I'll end here by saying when we look at the crises um, in the Central African and Horn of Africa region, and we look at the fact that the majority of refugees uh, across those countries are now currently being hosted in Uganda or Ethiopia. Um, That is not to say that other countries in the region aren't hosting. Kenya, Tanzania, Central African Republic, the DRC are also hosting, but the balance, there is an imbalance there. And the question posed is why is that? It is because at a national level, some countries have a more open door policy than others. And therefore the burden or the responsibility weighs heaviest on the one that wants to do something. And there has to be a way to be able to ensure better coordination, whether it's Africa, whether it's in the Americas, Europe or Asia, there has to be a way to ensure that we actually balance the scales, so to speak. At the moment, we're not doing a very good job of that.
1: Thank you, Atalia. I'm sure I speak for the whole audience in saying no apologies necessary because your uh, reflections are very insightful. Uh, Catherine, since uh, Ottilia already began to answer one of the questions in the Q&A, perhaps I'll turn to you to uh, also reflect upon it. There's a question from Salvo Nicolosi. Thank you Salvo. The question is, to what extent can the new European Pact on Asylum and Migration contribute to the concrete realisation of the promise of free movement? This has been quite unnoticed in the recent debate
0: yeah i'm grateful for the question thank you salvo so as most of you may be aware at present um, asylum seekers in the eu are imagined as if they have an obligation to apply for asylum in their the first country they arrive in in fact that isn't the correct legal reading of the regime but that's the one that informs the political discourse Um, and in fact then they're also imagined to have done something wrong by fleeing to Europe in the first place, if they've come from Turkey, which the EU tries to style as a safe country also, which is also, of course, legally unconvincing and incorrect. Um, So within Europe for asylum seekers, we don't have mechanisms to share out responsibility, we have have mechanisms that allocate responsibility in uh, ways that are both unfair to asylum seekers and uh, to states. So it's interesting, just reflecting on Attilia's point. You know, we have a very evolved system for regional cooperation in Europe. I mean, it's the most evolved regional entity in the world, but we haven't been able to do responsibility sharing even internally within the EU. Uh, and then, what compounds the situation for refugees is that even if you're recognised as a refugee, which sometimes might take a long time in a, in some states in Europe you then don't get to move to other EU countries unless you uh, acquire what's called long-term residence status, which might take five years, or you might naturalize, and then you become an EU citizen. Uh, And there's a hint in the pact, as Salvo identified, that the status of refugees should be an EU-wide status, so that seems to implicit within that idea that this would be an EU-wide status, that it might entail mobility rights. Um, it's never been; it, it's actually part of the way the EU asylum system w- was envisaged from the beginning. So there was a treaty-based commitment, an EU law, to an EU-wide status. So I'm just not really sure within the current political context whether that's feasible or likely. Um, we don't even get mutual recognition of positive asylum decisions in Europe, although you have mutual recognitions of driver's licenses and educational qualifications and product standards. And you know mutual recognition is the engine of the European, the reality of a very integrated economic and social space in Europe, but not for asylum decisions and implicitly an EU-wide st- status. um, would involve that. Um, I'd also be a little bit wary of making EU-level decisions on this. So another sort of uh, institutional permutation which might seem a bit, uh, not utopian, but a little bit unrealistic at present, but is whether we should have a European agency taking asylum decisions. Um, And I would be quite wary that that would be just a very restrictive agency if it was centralized. Um, But others have taken that proposal seriously as well.
1: Thank you, Catherine. Uh, If I can turn to you, Vitit, a question from Brian, which has been one of the most popular in the chat so far. It's a question about political will in Asia. And it's, what do you think works to generate political will? The identity of the states in Asia as transit countries, for example, is entrenched. Can you imagine an Asia of regional responsibility sharing and local acceptance of refugee integration? And if so, what steps might be needed to get there?
3: Well, at least uh, the two key components of the longish question. One is what generates political will and hopefully sustains it, and the other is what are some of the solutions available, particularly settlement, local settlement, rather than resettlement or something else. The first one, I think uh, leadership helps and public pressure helps. Uh, so, um, to motivate through leadership and public pressure uh, at times does lead to an opening, an aperture. And this happened, for example, when there were reformer situations when I was on the border many years ago, 1979, public pressure, international pressure, and also uh, the more enlightened part of the leadership tried to convince the more security minded leaders that actually it's good for the country to open the door a little bit to enable people to come in. And there's a political, um, incentive there, incentivization in terms of a response, a human rights response, for everyone. Secondly, um, I think um, political will is uh, very important for another reason, and that is to generate a policy which is humane, for lack of a law which is humane, uh, or for lack of a, a legalistic response. What do I mean? Uh, the Indochinese influxes in the 70s and 80s and 90s Uh, They were benefiting from temporary refuge, not because of law, but because of policy generated by policymakers, Uh, statements or discretionary, somewhat discretionary uh, allowances in terms of enabling people to come in rather than having a local law which opened the door to refugees. In fact, the local law there then and even now is immigration law, and it classifies incoming people as illegal immigrants who could be locked up in immigration jail, still. And it is the policy that flips it. If the policy says humanitarian assistance, humanitarian access, then it means that the person is enabled to come in for temporary refuge without being classified or allotted the status of illegal immigrant and being locked up. And that is the situation, particularly in Thailand today, of 90,000 to 100,000 Burmese in camps along the Thai border who've been there for 30 years. So very important, Luhu. Finally, let me not forget that it's not just political will. I would call it social will as well, social will, meaning that the community support bolster a certain humanitarian response as well. And the host community, the local community is very, very important because they're the first people to meet the incoming asylum seekers, so to speak. So generating a certain understanding ethnically, uh, politically of how to be more open towards incoming people who've escaped from persecution and warfare, whatever, is very important locally, while not forgetting, while not forgetting also to help the local people. And this has always been part of the problem uh, in terms of differentiation between aid going directly to refugees in camps, the water delivered directly, and then the local people around having no water. And part of the um, rebalancing of the compact and the refugee forum has been to say, look, we need to uh, empower, capacitate, and respond to host communities as well, so that they can respond well to incoming asylum seekers on the basis of non-discrimination.
5: Thank well, you very Finally, much. on settlement.
3: Sorry. Um, very difficult, um, because um, most Asian countries, or at least in South Asia, Asia, have been spoiled through resettlement. They always look to resettlement as the maximum solution, and that was the case in 70s and 80s and 90s. But resettlement is not possible anymore. So you're back to square one, the traditional threesome, you know, local settlement, voluntary repatriation or um, resettlement, um, local settlement, voluntary repatriation, resettlement. Local settlement has always been possible to some extent if there is a certain political or ethnic affinity. What do I mean? The ties, even though rejected, generally Cambodians in the 70s and 80s and 90s were open to ethnic ties ties from Hong Kong in Cambodia coming back and then settling. So ethnic links help. Maybe discriminatorily they help. And also political affinity may also help in terms of opening the door in terms of empathy for groups coming in. Uh, And uh, what's the offering today? Different uh, components of the package. We try to explore local settlement, but we're not close to Warranty repatriation nor resettlement, even though there's a trickle today. And the whole point of the compact and the forum last year was to look through a variety of possibilities, which they call pathways as a semantic complementary pathways. Japan today is offering scholarships to Syrians to go and study. Thank That's you, not a traditional maybe. solution necessarily, or sponsorships, or sponsorships, families and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are uh, sprinkle of possibilities or family reunification, all or of the orderly departure programs on the basis of family reunification. It's not either or, we explore the totality of possibilities there, I think, while not forgetting the root causes and the need to tackle the country of origin.
1: Thank you, Vitit. Well, we're at time, we've only got one minute left, but I wouldn't mind throwing around to the remaining three speakers just for a 30 second quick reflection because Vitit's answer is cast on this issue of durable solutions. We're talking about emerging challenges, looking at the next decade. Are there any 30-second reflections that you'd each like to share in your region? Uh, Durable solutions, uh, what do you see in terms of the next decade? Um, Arub, I'll start with you. Thank you. Uh, Durable solutions
2: have not been welcomed at all within the Middle East region, uh, especially the local integration. That's why we really need to think of, and resettlement is not possible anymore because the Global North does not want to receive refugees. Uh, going back home is difficult. Uh, So the solution is for us to realize that whoever is living with us in our countries really need to to secure themselves with basic rights. Uh, And uh, the the role uh, is definitely to reach out to more involvement of the international community in thinking strategically. With these uh, global South uh, countries, in order to serve these uh, these refugees
1: in limbo. Thank you, Atilia. Um,
4: uh, thank you very much. I, you know, I think across our, our, our presentations, we've in many ways uh, responded uh, uh, to this question. But I think in the medium to long term, there there has to be a need to to essentially do what Vitted suggested without suggesting it, which is if there are regional mechanisms that deal with uh, all the other issues, and what Catherine alluded to by, by saying, here you have a great coordinating body, but that seems to be struggling on this one particular topic, then we have to accept and recognize that this again is not a challenge that's going away and so the imperative to 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 push for greater coordination uh, greater recognition uh, improved protections and mechanisms even of repatriation have to be put in place because without that we we will have this very conversation in, uh, in 2030. And if I can, Madeline, just very uh, quickly to, to, to really respond to uh, uh, some, some key things also emerging in, in the chat, just in the spirit of inclusiveness. Um, I would want to say uh, in, in our conversation, we must recognize that while there are some few countries from which people do not flee, the reality is that persecution is not the remit of some individual countries alone. We simply see greater persecution in other countries and therefore we see greater numbers uh, coming from those countries. I would like to apologize to the person who posed the question on Burundi specifically. Burundi is a country where a lot of people are at the moment fleeing. Almost over 300,000 people have already fleed in Burundi, and that needs to be recognized. Uh, Likewise, there are countries with uh, smaller numbers of people fleeing. But please, and I want to underscore this. Just because it's two, 10 or 1,000 people fleeing over 700,000, it does not mean that that persecution is not real. And it does not mean that we do not need to find durable solutions to address even that which we think is small. Small and big must be addressed.
1: Thank you, Attilia, for those reminders. And I know we're over time, but Catherine, in conclusion to you, is there any final remark you'd like to make on this topic?
0: Um, I suppose what I find really striking in Europe is just this dissonance between a very stuck politics um, and even with a a new Asylum and Migration Pact that claims its newness in its title, you know, most of it is rehashing old ideas Um, and just the reality of the post-2015 arrivals and people who were granted status very quickly, at least in Germany, if they were Syrian, which is a, a very, very significant population and are just living and working in Europe as previous uh, generations of refugees did. Um, And that somehow just that dissonance between the politics, and maybe it is looking at the local level and at cities and places where refugees live and inclusive communities that we can sort of shift the the political level. Um, And also I think lawyers have to look at the role of legal institutions, not only as institutions of protection, but as institutions of exclusion. Um, and, and really, uh, and look at the role of law in, as also a, an instrument which legitimates exclusion, just as it legitimates and, um, and establishes protection. Thank you. Well, on behalf of the Kaldol Centre, I would like to thank all of our speakers for
1: joining us uh, this evening. And thank you to all of you joining on the webinar for participating in the chat. I encourage you all to continue the conversation uh, through the networking function of the conference website and to join us for the new sessions. If you'd like to see a recording of this session, it should be up uh, tomorrow or or shortly thereafter. Uh, And thank you again to everyone on the call. Have a good evening.